Hello, and welcome back to Driven Minds. I'm Gigi, and this is a Type 7 podcast. This is a wild episode in more ways than one. So I want to start with some backstory and a few FYIs. I don't talk about my family that much on the podcast. Instead, I spare all of you and save that for my therapist. But my dad developed TV shows for CBS in the 90s. And there was one day in 1993, while he was on a transatlantic flight, he had an encounter with an actress. In midair, she convinced him to let her star in her own TV show. The show was The Nanny, and the woman is our guest today, the one and only Fran Drescher. So Fran and I have met once before. It was when I was four, and it was on the set of The Nanny. So I'm not sure if you've seen the show, but The Nanny always had these spoofs of sorts at the end of each episode while the credits were rolling. And in one of the endings, they recreated this exact airplane meeting between my dad and Fran. And the show's producers thought it'd be cute if I was sitting next to my dad in the scene. Shockingly, I did not have any lines. And I will never forget wondering why this fake plane was full of cameras, not taking off, and when I was going to get my cranberry juice. So after The Nanny, Fran went on to star in two more sitcoms living with Fran and happily divorced, which was a show about her own divorce and subsequent friendship with her gay ex-husband. Her words, not mine. Fran is both a sexual assault survivor and a cancer survivor. We talk about both as well as her movement, Cancer Schmancer, which is her nonprofit dedicated to ensuring that women's cancers be diagnosed in stage one, which is exactly what happened to Fran. So shit was bananas from the moment we started this recording because there was a huge car crash outside a friend's house, like right before we hit the record button. Apparently, a drunk driver had plowed into a car that belonged to the makeup artist who had glammed Fran up for our recording. Does that make sense? If it doesn't, she will explain everything. So without further ado, here it is, my conversation with Fran Drescher. Hi, everyone. Hi. Wow. Hi, darling. How are you all? Wow, it's <laughs> rock and roll time here, let me tell you. What's going on? Oh, my God. There's a drunk driver, hit three cars. No one was hurt, but my makeup man's car is totaled. Unreal. He has insurance though, right? I mean, of course. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But still, oh, what aggravation. We were having such a lovely day getting ready for this podcast. And he said, I just heard a loud crash. I said, oh, it's probably an accident. Don't go out yet. Let me just look on my security camera. Right. And he said, oh my God, it looks like they hit my car. Oh, but this was a drunk driver. Unreal. That guy is already in handcuffs. No. Oh, the police is already there. Yeah. There's lots of sheriffs outside talking to some girl who's a witness. Oh, my God. Okay. Great. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> just, just another Wednesday, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm so sorry about your glam team's car, but you do look fantastic. They're the so. best. They're the best. And I'm just, 
So you may hear sirens. <laughs> you may hear a, a a very, you know, upset, crying makeup man in the background. <laughs> oh, Because <bless laughs> it was Lord. his car. Oh, my but, God. But uh, I'll take him to Soho House for a nice stiff drink after this. There you go. There you go. You know, I see our episode quite often. Do you really? I can't do, believe you do, remember it. Have you? I know every episode. Okay. Have you um, seen it lately? I have. I have. You know, it's on HBO Max. You can I know. just look at that episode. I know. I know. And of course I've seen. I mean, I've been watching reruns because the feeling that the nanny gives me is like a warm cocoon childhood hug, you know, because it was yes. the show I grew up to. That's how all the millennials feel. And that's why it's gained so much popularity yeah. now. But the scene that we played out was a fictionalized account of something that really happened. And you were so cute. <laughs> and you had like a big bow in your hair. I oh, think. that was my mom's doing. <laughs> but I've, I've heard it from his side of how it really went down. But I want to hear it from your side from start to finish of what the actual interaction was like. How the show got started and everything. Yeah, because I, yeah. I hear this, you know. Well, this he's part of, he's, he's impregnated in the story. I've been asked it for nearly almost 30 years now. <laughs> but um, I did a short-lived series for CBS called Princesses with Twiggy and Julie Haggerty. And that only lasted for like six episodes. Then I did a pilot for a possible summer a fill-in show that didn't get picked up. So when my girlfriend said to me, look, I just bought a house in Southwestern France and I'm going, if you want to come with me, come. And I thought, you know, there's no way I'm going to get another job. I just finished two jobs. We got to wait for pilot season to come around again. So I'm going to cash in my frequent flyer miles on... <laughs> T-W-A. My dream. Now a defunct airline. But back then, that was, I guess, the way CBS flew. Because I had just enough miles to get to France. And um, it was literally my first time flying to Europe by myself. And it was really a big milestone for me because I had already started working on not being so codependent, mm -hmm. not being fearful of doing things on my own and going out there in the world. And it was really, uh, you know, a feat for me. I had to keep telling myself, all I have to do is get from this point to that point and my girlfriend Catherine's going to be on the other end. Mm -hmm. But then your father walked in, Jeff, and I looked at him and I said, Jeff, and he said, Fran, and I thought, thank you, Lord. And I ran into the bathroom to put some makeup on. This is pre-flight or during flight? Well, I saw him as he, you know, embarked on the plane. Right, right. And I ran into the bathroom to put some makeup on. <laughs> I'm powdering my nose and I'm saying carpe diem, carpe diem, which means seize the day. Of course. And I'm remembering now at this point, I'm... <coughs> Sue, can you give me... A little water, please. I'm again. I guess all the excitement. I'm getting a little parched. Right? Okay. 
Thank you, Sue. <laughs> this is going to be one of those out of control interviews, but it'll I be fun. Love it. I it'll love be fun. It. <laughs> so I remembered as I'm getting ready, yeah. I'm remembering back to when I was a teenager, still living at home with my parents, uh-huh. and I had an audition for a commercial. I went to all the trouble of doing my makeup, making sure my mascara was perfect, blowing my hair out. So, you know, it was like, just like Farrah Fawcett and all this stuff. Yeah. And I took the two buses and the train into the city. When I got to the audition, it was for a commercial. They wanted me to do something stupid. I felt uh, like self-conscious, didn't give it my all. As I'm coming home, on the train and the two buses. I'm beating myself up and I'm only like 17 years old, but I'm Mm -hmm. thinking to myself, you know, this is a life lesson because this feeling of regret is so much worse than if I had just Mm -hmm. gone for it, you know? And so I said, I'm never going to do that again. In what way didn't you go for it? Like at the edition that you It was, I think for like a fast food... Jack in the box. Okay, yeah. Of and course. they wanted me to like kind of sing and dance with a paper bag over my head so they could see me without my head because I would be wearing, I guess, a jacket. <laughs> that would be illegal today. <laughs> I just felt stupid. Yeah, so uh, I but and I was a kid. Yeah. And uh, you know, I let my self-conscious awkward teenage self take over. Mm. And, but then I had the wherewithal to think as I'm going home, I feel so bad that I didn't just do it. I know I didn't get it. I wasted my time. Yeah. I hate this feeling of regret. I'm mad at myself and I'm never, ever going to do that again. Well, your dad was a captive audience because where was he going to (laughs) go? And he happened to be standing at the flight attendant station waiting to get some kind of a cup of coffee or something. Your mom was already asleep in her chair. Like the whole time she slept with her mask on out. (laughs) Fran's cue. (laughs) Exactly. And I mean, at first we talked about other things travel, hotels. I always traveled well, even if I couldn't afford it. So I had something to, and and I like going to good restaurants that I really couldn't afford. (laughs) And then it was, you know, uh, he said to me, oh, he almost brought it up. He said, "Uh, don't worry, you know, there's going to be a lot of pilots coming down the pike and we'll find something else for you. Back then, the gay 90s. There was a lot of money. It was a big dot-com bubble. You know, uh, the whole country was in a good financial place. There was no deficit. And um, they made a lot more pilots than they do today. And I said to him, no, Jeff, it's not going to go like that. I'm too unique. Uh, you know, you're never going to find something that's really going to fit me hand in glove. Incredible. And I said, you got to listen to my ideas with Peter, who was my husband at the time, now my gay (laughs) ex-husband. But that's another episode. (laughs) 
So um, I said, we know my brand of comedy better than anyone else. And you have to, you know, listen to it. Now, I never pitched the idea because between you and me, I didn't have it then, even though I said, have I got an idea for you for me? So how did you get the idea for the nanny? Okay, so first of all, nine and a half hours later, I kid you not, the poor man finally threw his arms up and said, okay, when we get back to L.A., give my office a call Uh and I'll set you up a meeting with the head of comedy development. So I couldn't wait to call Peter on the phone and tell him what had gone down. Then I go to my girlfriends in France and what she forgot to mention was that she was she had her two toddlers with her. And I had never even lived with kids, let alone two little toddler boys who were always screaming and crying. Screaming, crying, screaming, crying. I said to Peter, this is no vacation. He said, well, Twiggy said, I'm so near. Why don't I come visit her in London? Okay. Now, normally this was enough for me that I got on the plane and I ended up in London. Well, when I got to London... Uh, Twiggy and her husband, Lee, were busy working on a project. And I was not quite ready to navigate a new city all by myself. I think I had been there with Peter. But again, I was still working on my fear of being by myself. And so I schlepped her little 12-year-old proper British schoolgirl with me. When at some point, the kid says to me, oh, Fran, my new shoes are hurting me. And I'm thinking, what the hell is she telling me for? <laughs> and then I, I, I thought, oh, God, I hope she doesn't want me to take her home because I'm not ready to go yet. So I said to her, you know what, honey, step on the backs of them. And she says innocently to me, won't I break them? And I said, break them in. <laughs> I felt so funny doing this. I could not get this relationship out of my head because I wasn't telling her what was good for her like a normal caregiver. I was telling her what was good for me. Yeah. So I go back to their flat, which was where I was staying. And in the middle of the night, it was like 5 a.m. London time. I called Peter back in L.A. because it was much earlier in L.A. And I said, I think I figured out the idea to pitch to, you know, CBS. What do you think about a spin on The Sound of Music, only instead of Julie Andrews, I come to the door. Incredible. And Peter, who has a very good instinct for this, he said, he thought for a moment, he said, that's it. As soon as you get back, we're going to develop it. Then your dad said to me, you know, once the show is a hit and everything, he says, you have no idea how many actresses have come up to me and say, have I have a show for you for me? But yours really was the bullseye. And he also said oh. something that I never forgot. And I quoted him many times. He said, Fran, you are a Russell because you have the curves of Jane Russell, the comic oh timing of Roz Russell and the tenacity of a Jack Russell. I love it. You were 35, 36 when you started. I was 34. 34. So so 34 when the nanny started. Right, 34 
When we did the pilot. When you did the pilot. And then it was picked up pretty much after, right? Uh, yes. I mean, you know, they wanted to do a piece of the script, like a 15-minute, they call it a presentation pilot. We were determined to do the whole script. We said, well, beg, borrow, and steal. Yeah. It wasn't the set. If you look at the first episode, which is the pilot, it's not what became the Sheffield Mansion. Uh, a lot of the clothes were from my own wardrobe. We kept it really lean and mean. But uh, I'll tell you another little inside story about that. Your dad uh, called while we were still writing the pilot script. And uh, he said, I have great news. Procter & Gamble wants to buy the show outright which is an unbelievable thing. Cause, of course, advertising money right there. Right there, it's done. Yeah. Uh, the only codicil is that the nanny has to be Italian, not Jewish. Unreal, but you wrote the show as Fran Fine being Jewish, right? Absolutely. Now this circles back to me hating to live with regret. Yeah. And I knew that even though this was my big break, because I had made a commitment to myself that I was going to get on the inside of the business in a big way. I realized I don't like working for other people. And I often think that I have better ideas. Where does so, this confidence come from, though? I mean, I love it, but I'm so... I guess, look, my mom told me when I was in junior high, what they call middle school now, you don't need to take typing because you're going to have a secretary. Love that. That's words of wisdom right there. Yeah, and you know, Orson Welles once said that as far back as he can remember, in the crib, his parents would look down at him and say, such a genius. And he felt like, I have to live up to this or I'm going to disappoint them. Yeah. So I think you can't underestimate parents' unconditional support and love of their child. Because when you bolster their ego yeah. and you make them feel special and you kind of allow them the totally. room to explore the things that they seem to accelerate in, it goes a long way. Yeah. So, you know, when someone's telling you at a very young age, you can do anything, you're yeah. that's that remarkable. Yeah, that toddler era encouragement, you know, does the trick. I'm curious, did the show take time to take off or was it like this overnight success situation and your life changed within a couple of episodes? We knew we caught lightning in a bottle the night of the pilot. It was really? torrential rains outside. Yet they got this audience to come for a pilot. So it's not like they're coming to see their favorite TV characters. Right. It's not like they know the show. They don't. They're just probably tourists who got, you know, pulled in. And the pilot, meaning they don't even know if this episode will be picked up. So this is no. a true, right, a true trial. They were laughing so hard and they were already anticipating like you'd hear like on the old I Love Lucy show, all of a sudden someone in the audience said, uh-oh, you know, <laughs> they knew, they knew. Yeah. When the bottle walked in and Fran Miles. was doing this, they never yeah. saw us before. They never saw the show before. Yeah. But the silhouette of the show was something that they understood. Right. And uh, it transcends language even. Totally. You know, it's that blue blood meets 
blue collar. It's upstairs, downstairs. And then it's that flirty sexual tension between the nanny and the boss. It's the best part. Yes. We were lucky. I mean, I never really finished telling you that I I knew that I if I wrote the part Italian, it wouldn't be as good a show because Peter and I are not Italian. Right. We wouldn't it wouldn't have the richness of specificity that our brand of comedy is. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't play it with the detail that I could a Jewish character. And it, television is a very fast medium. It's not like I like right. when you're making a movie and you can really develop a character. Right. You know, you got to just do the play and be very close to someone that you know that you could play uh, very easily. And so Peter and I said, Fran Fine must be Jewish. And the the thing was, I ended up being the first Jewish actress to play a Jewish character on primetime in a starring role since Molly Goldberg did it in 1948. And now it was 1993. As a New York Jew, I am insulted for all of us. Honestly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This was the first role that you you really broke out. All of a sudden, is it kind of like an overnight celebrity level fame? Like after season oh, one, yeah. did Dan Aykroyd, who is a friend of mine, said to me because I had, I did a movie with him before The Nanny, I think even before Princesses, and uh, he said to me when The Nanny started to sizzle, your life is going to change now, and mm. be prepared. Because you're going to have to go through a lot of steps mm-hmm. to secure your privacy. Right. And uh, that's going to be the biggest change in your life. And he was absolutely right. I remember Peter and I were at an airport and Peter said, look, we're late for the plane. Don't talk because, you know, it's hard for me to say no to fans if they want me to, you know, sign an autograph or right. something. Right. Back then, luckily, there wasn't, everybody didn't have a camera phone. Right. So uh, it was just if you happen to have a camera on you. But of course, when you're at an airport, a lot of people do. Right. And I hate to reject people. So he said, just don't talk. <laughs> and then, you know, I think he asked me one thing and all I said was, uh-huh. And everybody turned around. On the escalator. <laughs> the voice. And friend. Yeah, just from an aha. Uh-huh. Incredible. So the voice always gave me away, even if I had, you know, a hat on and sunglasses and stuff like that. Yeah. But I, I think I'm very blessed because the character is so beloved. Right. And I tend to present myself in a very authentic, open book way. Right. And the character's name and my name is the same. So people kind of think we're the same. Right. And I get a lot of positive affection. Right. You know, can I hug you? How are you feeling? Wow. You know, I love you. And all different walks of life. Everybody. Is that ever off-putting? Or do you ever feel like your safety is jeopardized by your fame in any capacity? And is it ever too overwhelming? Are you sensitive? You know, I was a victim of a violent crime, right? I do, which I want to talk about as well. Yeah. So when people come towards me, you know, I don't really know what they want. 
they know they think they know me and they know what their intentions are right but i really don't so if i'm not with somebody um i'm usually with my dog mm-hmm. even at airports and things i want to i want to have a buffer they call it so i can get around on my own too yeah. i don't want to be restricted do you think you're, you, you mentioned that you were afraid to go to Europe um, alone without someone. Do you think part of that was a byproduct of your sexual assault? I think that I've been codependent. Uh, I mean, I met Peter when we were 15 and school, I ended up marrying him. Right. And uh, I didn't go away to college. I didn't go away to camp. I never backpacked through Europe. Mm-hmm. I like to stay home with my parents. I think I always had a little bit of that in me that just compounded when I became a victim. It, it, it just, I think, exacerbated what was already a little bit of a phobia. So um, I definitely have worked myself through this. And I'm very proud of myself for that. I do a lot of things alone now. Right. I, you know, I mean, I went to South Africa by myself. I've been to Europe by myself. I live alone, you know, and it's remarkable. I amaze myself. Sometimes I actually think to myself, oh, did I put the alarm on? I better check. Oh, I forgot. Wow. That's really something that I would be just such a different person that I could relax and uh, uh, forget to put the alarm on. So, yes, I've come a really long way. What did the next 24 hours after your assault look like for you? Because unless that has happened to you, it is truly impossible to understand the headspace of someone who has gone through that? And how did self-processing start? You know, the first 24 hours is absolutely surreal. And I think you're in a state of shock in a way. It First of all, it took me like a year to get to a place where I didn't feel like a mirror that was broken in a million places. I remember I was a cigarette smoker, like a half a pack a day. I had quit that night. I picked it up. Right. I had a joint in one hand and a cigarette in the other hand. And I said, look at this. I couldn't even, ow. I didn't, I didn't really even know what I was doing. I didn't feel clean. And mm. uh, I remember months later, I was out to lunch with my manager, I think, and a busboy had dropped a tray of dishes or something. Mm -hmm. And the noise, I literally jumped out of my seat and screamed. And then everybody in the restaurant looked at me. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I kind of slinked back down into my seat. And initially, you know, I... I didn't finish my sentences. I would space out and go back to that place. So a therapist had, she said, do you usually stop talking in the middle of a sentence? 
I said, what are you talking about? She said, you were just talking and then you stopped talking. And you didn't even realize. No. How long after did you start seeing a, a therapist after the, the incident? Uh, maybe a week or so because... Okay. Um, I had seen on TV uh, a therapist that um, I kind of liked things that she had to say. She was a guest on a talk show. And I wrote down her name. No way. And that was the one that I called. Oh my God, you got a celebrity therapist. Yeah, I don't know. It was a, it was a local talk show. Oh. But uh, that's who I called and, mm-hmm. uh, and went to for a while. She was the one that had said to me, you know, with victims, you very often get stuck in the moment of horror. Mm-hmm. But you have to walk your mind past that. Right. And then they left and you lived and you're okay. And you're moving forward with your life because the brain can get stuck in that one horrific moment. And you have to really, it's very important when you're going through anything, not necessarily a victim of a violent crime, but anything really uh, that you are open to. Um, speaking to a trained ear who can help walk your mind through the post-traumatic stress. They caught the guy, right? Because you... They did. Him and his brother. It was both of them in the house. Yeah. And I uh, have a uh, photographic memory. I don't think it's as good now as it was (laughs) when I was younger. Uh But um, I... Um, studied this per- the rapist's face for all kinds of details. While it was happening? Yes. Because I saw another talk show where they interviewed a detective and the detective said that victims make the worst witnesses because they're so scared right. that they don't really study for specific character details about the assailant. Right. And I remembered that that night. Unreal. That I had seen that too. So I did the police sketch with the artist and they start out with a face that's looking straight at the viewer, but I wasn't seeing him that way. I was seeing him like this. Right. So I said, can you turn the head a little bit? Because that's, how I could see him. And I could tell you exactly how to draw him that way. And he said, of course. And there had been several other break-ins in my neighborhood right around the same time. And rape victims. This was in New York? No. It was in the Valley. In the Valley. Okay. And the city of Van Nuys got approval Mm-hmm. to spend enough money for a stakeout for three nights only uh, with unmarked cars and plainclothesmen detectives okay. on every corner within a small radius of my house. The first two nights, nothing happened. Mm-hmm. On the third night, a car was parked outside a building. The car was running. And it had plates where my car was found because they loaded up my car with stuff and stole it. Oh, my God. So where they found my car 
was this match the plates of this car that was running. Fuck. So one plainclothesman starts talking to another through walkie-talkies from one car to the next as this car left the location. There was a driver in the car, a woman, and then there was a guy that walked into the car and started driving. And so one plainclothesman to another all the way until the car was about to get on the freeway, and that's when they pulled him over. When they pulled the guy out of the car, his fly was still open and he had jewelry hanging out of his pocket. And he said, I didn't do anything. And they had the picture of him. And if I tell you, it looked like he had posed for it. And they said, this is you, you motherfucker, and you're under arrest. Was that any sort of closure for you? I mean, of course, there was. I am so you know, sympathetic to people that don't have that level of closure because before they caught him, every time I saw somebody that I thought looked like him, I'd get this sinking feeling in my gut. Right. That it was his and I'd get scared all over again. Right. And I'm I'm sure it helped in my recovery. What's so unbelievable to me is that not only did you continue working, but post-assault, you developed a show and did it for six seasons. I mean, that's such a testament to strong will and determination and also... Well, you know, I had a superwoman complex back then. Mm-hmm. Now I know that I'm human and I walk on the ground with everyone else. <sighs> I've had cancer. I am in touch with my pain and am vulnerable with it. Right. I don't try and stuff it down and pick myself up and say, I can handle anything. I'm that person. Mm -hmm. I realize that that is unhealthy. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make me a well-rounded woman. I have to be able to receive as well as give. Mm -hmm. I have to be able to be vulnerable as well as strong. Right. That was part of the journey of post-rape. And then definitely by the time I got cancer, it was time for me to learn how to ask for help in a very real way. So it's been a lot of therapy. I didn't stay with that therapist. Eventually, I ended up with another woman who is, you know, very, very intelligent, an older woman very Jungian, very smart. Ooh. You know, I was with her for over a decade. The Jungian psychoanalyst. Yes. Lied on a couch and cried my eyes out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been there too. And it's great. Keep peeling off the onion skin and, and get at your core. Yeah. And not numb yourself from your feelings, but have the courage to feel them is a triumph, really. Yeah, you don't heal what you don't let yourself feel, you know? I mean, that's... Exactly. And you know what? As a consequence of being able to feel, I'm more empathic to other people's pain. I'm a better actress. I bet. I feel. I feel so much deeper. I feel for everybody else. I feel for everything, every living thing. (laughs) 
It's so funny. I just wrote this um, this article for Vogue about highly sensitive people. Do you know what this is in HSP? No. A highly sensitive person. It's these people that feel everything so deeply. And your senses are super attuned. Like for instance, I when I first watched Titanic, I started gasping for air as I watched the passengers gasp for air. I smell gas leaks when no one else can. I... I'm woken up by the drop of a pin and it's these people that feel everything so much more than everyone else and need time to digest it alone, separately at the end of the day. Everybody in my world knows that I cannot take scary movies. Same, same. Or very, even things that are intense, like those 10 o'clock police shows, detective shows. I can't. Same, but you know, I can't do it. And people, my friends will always say, Oh, have you watched this? It's not for you. Yeah. They're talking to other people in the room. Yeah, yeah, and they'll I make a point of saying it's not for you. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, I am the same. I feel like I'm the same way as you now. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't even kill bugs. I, I also feel. don't. I, I kill ants sometimes, but I do not kill. I also don't kill bugs. I always like do the cup and the paper thing. And then you kind of just right. like. But I don't even kill. I don't like to kill ants. Sometimes I'll vacuum them up if they get a little too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there's ants. There's ants everywhere. There are little ants everywhere. It's an illusion that our home protects us from anything. But, you know, storms, rain, cold, those elements. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, it's like a wood structure that's filled with life. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I also read so much of your cancer schmancer work and I felt like I was reading my own thoughts when you're talking about how the home is the most toxic place. And I mean, unless you're, you cognizant, you cognizantly buy it so easily becomes a place of your own self-destruction. Like it's truly a hell of your own creation with. Absolutely. Well, this is, we have a very progressive, I founded an organization, Cancer Schmanza Movement. Everybody can go to cancerschmanza.org and learn about it because what we do is pivot the way you look at your health. And you are responsible for your own health and well-being. And the way you live equals the way you feel. Yeah. So you have to be in control of the way you live because that's 98% of why you have dis-ease. And nobody in the health space really does a lot of talking about that. They're all looking for the next big chemo, the next great prescription drug. And it's like for us, Food is medicine and detox your life, I mean, is something that we stand behind and detox your home is mm-hmm. our program because we have so much air pollution in our home. It's more polluted than living across the street from an oil refinery. Mm-hmm. And people don't even realize because they're watching TV, they're watching the commercials. They think that, you know, Febreze and all of this industrial farmed foods and all of these personal totally. care items that are filled with carcinogens, all of it. Yeah. It's so unhealthy. And what's really bothering me is through this whole pandemic, how little on national broadcasts, if any conversation, is about, hey, 
Let's use this as an opportunity to bolster our immune system and get healthy. Let's yeah. see this as an opportunity. But that's not what's happening. Why? Because 80% of ad dollars on news programs is big pharmaceutical drugs. Really preaching to the choir here. Um, I also, I know you had a health 180 where you started thinking about all this, but was this at all in your consciousness before your cancer diagnosis or did this really come after all of the heavy research and the 180 in your diet? I think it really came after. I can't say that I was... Now, of course, we're going back 21 years. So I don't even know what the situation was like then, but I wasn't like reading labels to find organic. Right. I tried to always stop and smell the roses Mm -hmm. and enjoy my life, but I did allow stress to get the better of me Mm -hmm. a lot of times. And I wasn't fully connected to my vulnerabilities or, you know, things like that. So when I was diagnosed with the cancer, I thought, okay, I didn't spend all of this money in therapy to do the same thing I did when I was raped. This is the challenge right here and now. Mm -hmm. If something bad happened to me, I wasn't going to compound that by doing something bad to myself and using it as an excuse. Also, what I learned in my therapy, which I didn't know back then, was that I had a habit of numbing myself from my feelings. Preach. So, <laughs> so you know, when I, I would go into the therapist's office and she said, you can't be stoned in here. This is all about feeling your feelings. So by that point, I understood that I shouldn't numb myself from my feelings. I knew that. I wasn't doing that anymore. I was expressing myself to people, people that triggered me. Right. People that rather than confront, I didn't have those verbal tools. Mm -hmm. I would just get high. I stopped doing that um, many years before the cancer. So I knew that much. But this was my opportunity to really ask for help at a time when I was leveled to the ground. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, I, I, I couldn't cry in front of people. I couldn't say I I need help. I, you know, I just, I couldn't do any of that. And my life experience and the therapy helped to fuse everything together where I was in the moment, in pain and expressing it verbally and emotionally. And I said, you know, I mean, look, life gives you whispers all the time. They're very easy to deny. Mm and uh, dismiss. Like intuition. Uh, But yeah, it keeps getting louder and louder and louder until you head over the head with a sledgehammer. (laughs) Well, I didn't ask for help in the way I should have after the rape. And so I got cancer. And the cancer was, the you know, I mean, it's now or never because I don't want to go through something else. Right. To learn this stupid lesson Of asking for help and getting therapy when you need it. Yes. Owning the fact that I am a mess (laughs) and I need help. Yeah. And I'm scared to death. 
Right. And I don't know what's going to be because I had symptoms for two years and eight doctors before I was diagnosed with uterine cancer. The whole last year of the nanny. No. I was standing between periods and between producing the show, writing the show, starring in the show. You know, I was also running to different doctors. And end of the sixth season, we were taken off the air. And as it turns out, it was probably for the best because that following spring, I was diagnosed. And so, you know, it took me like a year to recover from the surgery and everything that I had to digest about what went down with me. Right. Because it, I, for much of my adult life, did not think I wanted children mm-hmm. because, I mean, I didn't really know this until I was in therapy, but I had, by design, surrounded myself with needy people. Mm-hmm. And there were so many needy people in my life. I felt so torn in every direction. And I wasn't really good at putting myself first in the equation of my own life. Where do you think that comes from? I think it came from the fact that my sister had some health issues growing up uh-huh. and uh, really sucked all the air out of the room, mm. uh, attention-wise, for many, many years. And right. uh, the only attention I got was from being the needless child. Like the hero. And for being helpful, but not having any needs of my own. Right. So you've been essentially conditioned not to ask for help or voice your needs when you have them. Exactly. That's exhausting. Yes. it's And, and you end up going emotionally bankrupt because if you give, give, yeah. give, and you never re- allow yourself to receive. Right. Not only is it narcissistic because you deny the other person the pleasure of giving, mm-hmm. but... Uh, Because you're uncomfortable receiving. Right. And in the beginning, I would actually say, you know, I'm not comfortable with you picking up the check, but it's in my therapy to do so. Mm. So I'm simply going to say thank you. So when was this therapy happening? Around when? Just so we have like a timeline. This was um, after the assault, but... Or after the- I did some therapy after the assault and then I put it away because I felt like I'm a superwoman. Right. I could do this. I, I put myself back to work, all of that. Then it was like maybe a year or two into the nanny. Now I'm famous. Mm. The show is wildly successful. And one of those tabloid magazine shows put on like a whole advertised thing that Fran Drescher was raped. They even attempted to go to the the prison, but he refused to speak with them, thank God. Were you public about this at this time or did they just hijack your story? No, I, I, I don't think I was public yet. It wasn't a secret. Right. And I did write about it in uh, Enter Whining, my first book. I think that came after. And I never tried to be secretive about it, but when this came out, they made it sound like it just happened, not 10 years ago. Right. And 
and people were calling my parents, you know, and it came back mm-hmm. with a, a wave of post-traumatic stress that I didn't expect would happen. But because I hadn't fully dealt with my pain, it was all right there, ready to spill out. That was when I found the very mm. smart woman because I was having, I think, a little bit of a nervous breakdown. A walking, I was high functioning. Right. But, uh, you know, my coping mechanisms were fried and my fears were coming right up to the surface. What were your coping mechanisms, if you don't mind sharing? I would drive to my shrink appointment and then I was supposed to go to the studio and I was going home. I didn't even, I'd like to be halfway home and I'd say, what am I doing? Right. You know, I should be going to the studio. And I was so on edge, like I would go ballistic sometimes if I felt like I was in trouble. I didn't like to be in mm. trouble. I go to a lot of lengths to be a good girl always. Mm-hmm. And so if something goes wrong, I I have to track the train like compulsively. How did this happen? Who said what? Where did this go wrong? Now I not so much. Right. Now if I, you know, fuck up, I say I'm sorry. I would never want right. to hurt you or do anything. I how can I make it up to you? But then I was so scared of being bad. Mm. And that also tracks back to early childhood. Good girl syndrome. I had that yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> Bites you in the ass 20, 25, 30 years later, let me tell you. It's a hollow victory. It really is. And, you know, you talked about the stress that you experienced on the nanny and um, also how you started losing a lot of weight. And did you have anything come up for you in terms of eating disorder or anything like that? Like when you did lose that weight on the nanny? No, I did not have an eating disorder. I had aggravation. Mm-hmm. You know, my marriage was falling apart. I was burning my candle at both ends. And I was kind of not eating dinners. Mm. I was playing tennis. I was trying to be thin. Because Peter and I, I think it once when I started to lose that weight, I think Peter and I were already separated. Mm-hmm. And I started uh, dating this much younger guy. But I always had like one of my lunches, I would have spaghetti and spinach every day almost. On that. set. That was your thing. Yeah. In my dressing room, they would bring mm-hmm. it to me. And, uh, you know, I had, I mean, and I, and I ate a nice big bowl of it, but I found that if I skip dinners, I I can lose weight much faster. So I was definitely doing that. Every time I'd reach for something, I'd say, okay, you're dating a much younger guy. Do you really need that cookie? Right. And I've been there too. (laughs) <laughs> so fucking hardcore and the skipping dinner thing I did as well uh, I'm like oh, I'll just go to bed hungry wake up hungry and then I'm like oh wait I, I don't weigh anything now I know I look at some of those episodes and I can't believe how skinny I was all they could turn sample sizes fit me I'm going through this too actually to be honest at a time where I thought 
that I couldn't be skinny enough. And I'd look back at those photos and I, I'd i be met with sadness. I wasn't like, oh, I look so hot, which is hard because I was complimented on how I looked. But when I look back at these photos, I'm like, oh my God, I wish I could just hug that 25-year-old and give her like six plates of pasta and tell her it doesn't fucking matter, you know? So I'm kind of curious. But, how you-, you know, that's the journey of life because... You know, I'm at the place now, I'm about 140 pounds and my body is super comfortable at that weight. And I think I look great. You do. And I'm never going to be, you know, 115 or 20 pounds again. Right. I couldn't carry it now. And what you have to do to be that weight is just crazy. You know, maybe when you're young, you can deal with it. But as you get older, you really have to honor your body. And I'm a health activist. So and and as a survivor, mm. you know, you have to really take care of your body, honor your body mm-hmm. and be kind to it and love it and love every part of it and be in gratitude. And I am. I'm a Buddhist now. And, uh, you know, Buddhist Jew, energy, full Buddhist, a Buju, a Buju. I like that. I am stealing that from you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's a philosophy that can complement anybody's religion, quite frankly. Yeah. It's not considered a religion. It's yeah. a philosophy on how to live one's life in the present mm-hmm. in gratitude. And uh, burning a candle at both ends is very self-destructive. And I would never do that again. Uh, But back then, I was driven by compulsion Mm -hmm. because I didn't really have myself figured out yet. And now I feel like I'm far enough along in my self-awareness, on my journey of self-refinement, that I can really love myself and be kind to myself and find real balance in my life. If you could tell yourself something from Fran now to Fran then when she was skipping dinners and doing these cycles of probably unintentional self-harm that so many of us find ourselves in at one point in our life, what would that be? Well, I I always feel like you're going to go through some major things and you're going to come out the other side better for it. So fasten your seatbelt. But I promise you, you'll be better on the back end and live a rich and wonderful life as a result. That's very beautiful. And that's incredible advice. I think anyone can take that and run with it. I'm curious, what was the first thing that you did when your cancer went into remission? Because I feel like it's so easy to make all these promises to ourselves and rethink our lives when we're sick, but then we sometimes so easily forget them when we get better or life changes for the better. Yeah, that's not me. I mean, um, I think of anything, what I learned after the rape in starting more serious therapy, 
when the marriage started to break down was, you know, I needed to learn a lot of things for myself, unravel a lot of things for myself, and then stay on that journey. Yeah. And not buckle back. So after the cancer, I remember I was sitting at this table I'm sitting at now. And I said, I'm going to write a book about what happened to me because mm-hmm. I don't want what happened to me to happen to other people. But when I went on my book tour and started doing public speaking, I realized what happened to me has happened to millions of Americans by means of misdiagnosis, mistreatment. And for many, though not me, unfortunately, late stage cancer diagnosis is a consequence. So I knew that the book was not the end, but just the beginning of what was to become a life mission. And Mm -hmm. I started the Cancer Transfer Movement. I got a law passed in Washington by unanimous consent, which means all 100 senators said yes, Fran. And I was written up twice in the congressional record. And then I was appointed public diplomacy envoy. So I turned my pain into purpose. Mm -hmm. And that is extremely healing. The book was very cathartic. And then turning pain into purpose helped to make sense out of the senseless. Mm. Because now I say, okay, I got famous, I got cancer, and I lived to talk about it. So I'm talking. And that makes sense to me. Last question. What drives you? I think the brevity of life Mm. and a unquenchable desire to have new experiences, climb new mountains, and keep self-improving, learning. That's all a big MO for me. That, my friends, was Fran Drescher. You can follow her on Instagram at officialfrandrescher and me at Gillian Sagansky. I always want to hear what you think of this episode or any episode. So DM me with comments, questions, concerns, who you want to hear from next, the whole shebang. I'm going to go rewatch my episode of The Nanny and weep for the passing of my youth. Until next time.